2: I'm
3: Paul New, And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the A&Ps from AOPA.
2: On uh, Ask the A&Ps, we answer uh, questions that you have about maintenance, especially the tough ones that have your mechanics stumped. And might even be some mechanics in the audience, so we'll, we'll help you guys too. So, um, if you'd like to be on the show, and we hope you would, um, please uh, email us at uh, podcasts at aopa.org, and we'll uh, try to schedule you uh, for to get on the show.
4: Make sure to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and not miss an episode.
2: And if you'd like to get on our um, email list for our monthly newsletter and other good stuff, uh, the easiest way to do that is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little bot will, uh, will ask you for your name and email address and add you to our list. So text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, to put yourself on our mailing list. I got something to talk about. Borescopes. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> we we love borescopes, and, and everybody we,
4: at Oshkosh had one. That was so yeah. impressive. Yeah, that was really nice. We
2: asked when we did the show at the at Oshkosh. We asked for a show of hands, and a lot of hands went up about having a borescope. But uh, but at any rate, one of the one of the problems, and and you know, borescopes have come just light years in the last twenty years. That they're they're much much cheaper than they used to be, and they're much much better than they used to be. They're, resolution of the new bore scopes is just absolutely amazing but one of the problems that we've had for with this is that no a&p has ever gotten any formal training in how to do a proper borescope inspection or w- what to take pictures of or how to position the camera and there's no guidance anywhere i mean there's 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 no maintenance manual that that, that gives you a protocol for doing a proper borescope inspection. Uh, Continental had a service bulletin, which is now part of uh, the, their manual M0 that, that says you're supposed to do a borescope inspection every time you do a compression test. It goes into chapter and verse about how to do a compression test, but doesn't say anything about how to do a borescope inspection. So there's a total lack of training and total lack of guidance. And so we're, we're trying to, to fill that vacuum. And um, on uh, January 1st, on or before January 1st, we will be releasing a, a training video, about a half-hour training video, that features our, our borescope uh, guru, Dave Pasquale, who, who has forgotten more about how to do borescope inspections than most of us will ever learn. And we've, we've developed a, a specific protocol for exactly what, photos to take in each cylinder in what order we 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 actually laid out 11 shots specific shots that we want uh, taken in in a particular order and Dave will be will be demonstrating how to do that how to position the scope what what the 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 pictures that we're looking for should look like and we're hoping to um that this will ultimately be adopted as a as as a standard protocol for doing borescope inspections, uh, the so that when an inspection is done, it covers all of the right bases, and because there's a standard way of taking these pictures, um, it, it'll be possible to compare the results of the the latest borescope inspection with the previous borescope inspection and 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 see trends and so on developing. So
3: it's kind of like getting X rays done, right? Yeah. So I uh, mean, they're yeah, very exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: That is precisely right, and and um, there there is industry standard protocols for for you know how you do a a, a chest X ray or an abdominal MRI or whatever it is. They they don't just uh, wing it. You know they've got very specific shots that they take in a very specific order, so that they so that all of the examinations are basically compatible with one another. So that's what we're 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 trying to bring to to the industry through through this uh, borescope initiative that we're launching. We we we're, we're also extending the Savvy platform with a with a borescope repository that will allow these images to be uploaded and and archived and uh, it, you know pulled up for for analysis and so on. It's it's um so we're, we're trying to turn this into a into a real science and, and provide the, the video is primarily aimed at, at A&Ps, but it's also going to be very helpful to, um, to owners that, that want to do their own borescope inspections. And, and it's, it's encouraging to see that, that uh, a lot of owners now have, have taken the trouble to buy their own borescopes and do their own borescope inspections when they're doing, you know, spark plug maintenance and stuff. It's, it's, it's all preventive maintenance that an owner is, is allowed to do we're also going to be the same time we release the video we're going to be releasing an, an illustrated checklist that uh, can be used when you're actually doing the inspection to uh, uh to, to mark off each image that you take and to uh there'll be little uh thumbnail graphics to illustrate what the shot should look like so that you know, people will hopefully get them all consistent with one another
3: Do we have, I think the answer is no, but this is maybe a suggestion. You know how uh, right now owners can for free just upload their engine data and and use our platform to look at their flights and use it as a repository. Have we thought about providing a place for people to upload their Borescope photos to keep a library of their Borescope photos and access on their own without? Because I think what you've got right now is just that account managers can look at these things, right, um, as part of the aircraft records.
2: Um, I'll have to check on that. It was my impression that the Borscope repository would be available to to savvy free uh, clients, oh, that'd be but, great. but but I'll have yeah. to I'll have to see. I mean, it, we we you know we we allow people to archive uh, engine moderated stuff yeah. uh, without without having a paid subscription, and I suspect that we'll we'll do the same thing. But that's a that's a good question, Colleen. I'll have to check with the software powers that be.
4: <laughs> um, about I can that, see the right. review of the, uh, of the photos becoming automated at some point.
2: With yeah, AI. That, that, <laughs> that is, a, yeah, that's actually something we've talked about is, is to, it, once we have enough Borescope images in the to system, which, the which computer, will probably yeah. be a couple of years. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how quick it'll be. It'll be interesting to see. We, we, you know, we have more than five and a half million flights in our, system as far as engine monitor data is concerned but we've been doing that for 11 years so um, i'm not sure how soon we'll have enough borescope images to use as training data but yeah that's definitely something that uh i think is in the future is to develop a machine learning neural network model that that will automatically look at borescope images and try to flag the ones that are cool interesting
3: (laughs) full disclosure we also want to use the borescope data to tie back to the engine data and see if if we predicted some kind of failed valve in the engine data, verify it with the borescope data. So we're trying to, in general, further the science with your donation of not body parts, but but engine data, right? You're for, you're helping further the science, and and, yeah. and we and we, we like
2: to we like to see owners <laughs> do do these inspections because they'll they they they'll, they get done more often that way, and you know the objective is to try to catch a sick exhaust valve in its earliest stages of sickness when it's still healthy enough that, that, that we can solve the problem with, with lapping the valve rather than only discovering it when it's, uh, when it's so chronically ill that,
4: uh, that the cylinder is going to have to come off. So yeah. the cool uh, thing the, is that it's not even maintenance. To take, take the spark plugs out and back in, that's preventive it's maintenance, PM. I guess. That's right. But the looking with the borescope, it's not even something you document. I mean, you can document it in the law of books, but it's not maintenance. It's the same as looking at your tires and saying, "Oh mm-hmm. no, they're not flat spotted." Right. It's, it's just a look.
3: Our first question is from Juan, who's having trouble going full power on
1: takeoff. Go ahead, Juan. Hey guys, um, thanks for having me on. Hey Juan. I have. I have the great fortune of of owning a 1977 uh, Cessna Turbo 210. And my question, um, you know, it's related to to the big red box. And uh, I've seen lots of information on, um, you know, the big red pull, but I haven't seen a whole lot on what I'm terming the little red push. So um, (laughs) so I'll I'll taxi about, you know, my uh, aggressive lean on taxi take the runway, stand on the brakes, and just shove everything forward to the firewall. And a few times, my engine has then quit on me. And you're not going to believe it, but it's oftentimes somewhere like Telluride, Colorado, where your pucker factor is already kind of (laughs) high to begin with, right? You know, I've attributed this to engine flooding. So, um, you know, after this happens, I'll start it up, get it going, let the engine rev up for a minute and then, and then, just take off there and then, so sort of have three questions or polls for you guys, so one, you know what's what's your guys for the little red push, the transition from aggressive taxi lean to take off, um namely to to avoid the you know the red box two, you know, if you were to flood your engine like that, what would you guys do? Would you do what I did and just kind of hang out on the runway, fire it up and Say, okay, well, let's get it after 10 seconds and take off, or would you go back and do a run-up? And then three, you know, is this normal? The plane's wonderful, and I'm I'm not really motivated to muck with anything. Um, but, yeah, it'd be good to, good to get your all thoughts.
4: Well, first off, yeah, there's not a big red box when you're at idle power or taxi. Well, I,
2: I wanted to make a, a very basic comment. If your engine is stumbling, that means it, Doesn't like what you told it to do, so you probably shouldn't be doing that. It's not good form to jam the throttle forward in any engine, but it's particularly bad form to jam the throttle forward in the turbocharged engine because the turbocharging system is is using engine oil as a hydraulic fluid to to try to control the wastegate, and it's it's not a very good hydraulic fluid, but it doesn't respond very rapidly, so the throttle up should be something that's done nicely, nice and slowly. If it's a long runway, you know, I, I I like to just throttle up slowly so that by the time I get the throttle all the way in, I'm just about at rotation speed. If it's a short runway or a high runway, then I will hold the brakes while I throttle up slowly. And, and then when I, you know, get up to 75 or 80% power, I'll release the brakes and continue moving the throttle to the stop. But damming the throttle in is not a a, a great idea in, in any engine. I kind of cringe when I hear people doing that. And uh, and it's a particularly bad idea if, if it's turbocharged.
1: Yeah, I guess, um, you know, maybe to Paul's point, my motivation was, okay, well, you know, I know at some point I'm going to be full power, everything firewall forward. And, you know, I was just thinking, okay, well, I just want to do the opposite of transition from, you know, take off to cruise where I want to kind of transition quickly through there. But, um,
4: no. So your, your mixture control, this is a whole separate topic, after you do your run up, just as you're pulling out on the runway or maybe just before just shove the mixture full forward. There's, there's no, you're at idle. There's no red box. There's no detonation. That doesn't happen until you're at like 65% power or higher. So go full rich. And when you're on the runway, as Mike said, you have to be aware when you shove the throttle forward, the wastegate is fully closed, which means your manifold pressure is going gonna, is gonna to go real high. The system can't react very quickly, and the oil is probably cold, and by cold, it may be 100 to 130 degrees in the engine, but the oil in all the hoses to the wastegate and the controller are not in the engine, and that oil hasn't been flowing because the controller closed it off to close the wastegate. So that's like cold molasses, and it's not part of your preheat either. Especially when you're up in telluride or something. Yeah, you're up at telluride, <laughs> yeah. So you've got you've got cold molasses in your in your control. And as you advance the throttle, and if you read through the 210 POH, the T210 POH, it'll tell you that you may have to mitigate maximum manifold pressure with the throttle. You can't just push it all the way forward and assume it's okay. It will overboost, and when it overboost, it will overflow the fuel as well, and that can just totally load the engine down, and it may fail. It may not fail. It'll stop. Or quit running, or run really terrible. So yeah, you, know, you can't you can't just blindly throw the controls forward. You are the computer that manages. You're the you're the fadec, although you may not be digital, but you're you're the thing that you're the thing that has to control that absolutely. But at any rate, b- throttle up
2: nice and slowly, and I, I think your problems will will go away. And I typically, most of the time, I, I I'll throttle up to run 50% power before I
4: push the mixture all the way forward. And then, then I'll bring it up the rest of the way.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's wow. great guidance. Thanks.
4: But yeah, if the engine quits on the runway, it depends on how much runway is behind you as to whether you decide to start and go again. <laughs> runway uh, behind you is of no value. Yeah.
3: I would turn <laughs> around and do a run up again. If it, if
4: my yeah, engine quit on too. the
1: runway, <laughs> usually it's times I'm, I'm standing on the brakes, So I haven't, I've actually moved anywhere.
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, interesting. Wow.
2: Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with, with, with doing that, particularly if, if you're concerned about runway length. You bring the power up slowly with the, with the brakes locked. And then when, when you get up to, you know, I, I, I typically don't go to 100% power with the brakes locked unless it's an extremely short runway. But once you get to a reasonable amount of power and everything seems stable, um, then, then release the brakes and start rolling.
1: So it sounds like, Paul, your, your approach is you go full rich as you're taking the runway. Yeah. Mike, yeah. your approach is you get 50% power and then you go full rich. Is that right?
4: That's what, that's what I mostly do. Yeah. Just make sure you don't forget to go full rich.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, but oh, if you're yeah. aggressively <laughs> lean enough, you it, can't It forget. won't run. <laughs> it won't
3: even run. That's true. Yeah.
2: I've yeah. forgotten a few times, but the engine always talks to it, me and says, yep. hey, you forgot.
4: <laughs> it's self-limiting. Yeah. If you lean it properly, it's self-limiting. It won't but, take but, off. But
2: in Juan's case, I think the engine's talking to him and saying, "Hey, yeah. don't do that.
4: <laughs> don't do that." Yeah, give it time. Like Mike says, give it time for all that cold molasses to uh, allow that wastegate to do its thing and stably come up to it. It'll it'll work fine. But all, all of you listeners
2: who are flying uh, normally aspirated airplanes do, do the same thing. Don't 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 gam the throttle
4: forward. Give it a chance.
3: Yeah, I like to put the, I don't fly turbo normalized or turbo, but I like to put the throttle in slowly and watch the fuel flow come up and make sure everything looks good before I start focusing on the roll down the runway. So I, I do that. I hold the brakes and bring the power up.
2: Yeah. And, and it's especially important. I, I fly a twin. It's especially important in a twin because you want to make sure both engines are coming both up engines together are and, <laughs> yeah. and you're not going to have a, an asymmetric issue and you
4: you definitely don't want to jam throttles forward in a twin. So, Juan, is this the standard Turbo 210, or is it modified in any way?
1: No, it's pretty standard, I think. Um,
4: okay. Yeah, because he referred to it as ter- turbo-normalized, but it's it's really turbo
1: Right, charged. yeah. It's, it's
3: just
4: turbo It's not turbo-normalized.
1: Yeah. Okay. okay. Oh, I got it.
3: So, Juan, you're going to run out and do this now to test it out, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, give me five minutes here. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like that's the solution, so that should work for you, so...
1: Yeah, I like that approach, so thanks, guys. It'll work. Good.
3: Okay, all right. Well, we're one for one so far, guys. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> thanks for the call. <laughs> yeah,
4: thanks, guys. Take one care. One in a row. Yeah. yeah.
3: Our next question is from Andrew, who is struggling to stay cool. Go ahead, Andrew. Okay,
6: uh, thanks for having me, guys. I've got a Cessna 3 Tim R 79. Uh, it's a... Coal mill conversion. So it's got IO 550As. Nice. When I, I've had it about a year, and when I started, I had high CHTs, high oil temps on the right side, and I have been basically whittling down things and correcting things as I go. I've currently got the CHTs under control with new spark plugs, uh, double check timing, replace all the engine baffling seals, and then reset up all the fuel flows. So that's under control, but I've still got. A right oil temperature that just kind of runs away on the descent and then the taxi. I've replaced the Vernatherm on that side. I've pulled the oil cooler and had it sent off for overhaul, quadruple check, baffling, done pretty, pretty much everything I can do. I even pulled the sensor out and got oil with a thermometer in there, got it to 240 degrees to make sure that the red line was actually the red line. And it was, it was a, it's a factory gauge. And I know I'm, I'm working to get a, an engine monitor, but on, on twins, it's apparently like four times as expensive. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm working on that. But at the same time, I do know that this gauge is indicating correctly. So that's where I stand now.
3: And you also had the oil cooler flushed uh, and you, you sent the Vernotherm and the oil cooler to Pacific oil coolers and had them check that out. Right. You check the baffling, the intercell. Yeah, the
6: oil cooler has been pictures. rebuilt.
2: Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure I understood something you said. You said that the oil temperature runs away high on descent?
4: Correct. That seems very weird, so, doesn't it?
3: And how high does it go? He doesn't know. He's got an analog gauge. It does to me. <laughs>
2: So, so this this is this is when you when you're going at at a high indicated airspeed and and reduced power, uh, you're in a descent. It
6: seems like uh, no, it actually only to. does it when I
3: slow down, like in the approach phase. Oh, oh, I see. Okay, that okay. that makes more sense. Yeah. yeah. So, that's so a, that definitely
2: sounds like an airflow issue.
3: Yeah. So airflow through the oil cooler is not sufficient to cool the oil. And the size of the oil cooler, could you go to a bigger oil cooler?
4: These are permold engines with the oil cooler in the back, right?
6: Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
4: Yeah, it almost has to be an airflow issue.
3: So there's a duct that sends the air to the back of the engine where the oil no, cooler there's is mounted. No,
2: there's no duct. It's, 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 it, it's using ram I didn't, I didn't get air. a confirmation from Andrew, but it, it Paul, it is uh, the coal mill is a, is a permold engine? We're pretty yeah, sure.
4: doesn't it have the uh, oil cooler in the back?
6: Yes, sir. They're permold engines. Oil coolers in the back, yeah. fixed to the rear. So there,
2: there's a you know this there, there's no duct, but there's this critical baffle be between the number two cylinder and the and the oil cooler, whose position kind of determines how much air the oil cooler is going to get, and how much air the number two cylinder is going to get. It's that v- vertical baffle that separates them. And I know on on my engines, I've I've had to wedge the that baffle forward a little bit to get proper air through flow through the cooler because it's. A-
4: I'm I'm wondering if, at the lower air speeds, if maybe there's a baffle piece that is moving, you know, under high pressure, it's in a proper position, but under low pressure, meaning low speeds. It's moving, then the one you're talking about would be a, a good suspect.
2: That would typically be the, the the baffle that goes across the rear of the engine. That's always the troublesome one because it's it it it's in a curve and
3: I know that you did a lot of baffle work looking at the ticket. You tried taping the rear baffling to the top of the cowl, which is quite a feat. Oh, that's I saw interesting. the pictures. I yeah, with aluminum tape. He did a lot of work on that trying to do it and the 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 general consensus from the savvy managers was that this is just a very difficult because um, the conversion to the five hundred and fifty and in a, a cowling that's not normally uh, housing a, a five hundred and fifty, it's very difficult to keep the oil temps down. That was
4: yeah, but the if one engine though. is cool and the other one's not, yeah, then that's th- the there's, thing. That's there's funny. something that's not correct, and it sure seems to me that it's not correct when it's under low pressure with high oil temps or low oil viscosity I, I don't know that there's a connection between those two but it sure sounds like a baffling issue yeah the, i mean the baffle seal that runs across the back of the
2: engine tends to develop you know these little dimples or wrinkles in it unless unless you make some isolation. slices in it so it lays flat
3: his is a lot of pieces that are like feathers that are just overlapping along the back to mitigate that.
7: So Which the next potentially step
3: potentially have holes yep.
4: is is to mount a GoPro and go fly with a GoPro. <laughs> Where do you put? Can the you GoPro? do that inside, inside your the engine? cowling? Oh, you betcha!
3: Really? Yeah. Not too hot.
4: Well, you know you're not going to leave it in there <laughs> for very long.
3: <laughs> okay.
4: While yeah, you're that, flying, it's watch not too, too hot. Bathroom.
3: Yeah, and is there enough light though? Too, I've not I think that. I would, That's why I'd
4: use a cheaper camera than a GoPro. Maybe something cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, what what can work pretty good is a borescope, uh, because you can you can tape it up in place. It has its own light source, and you can rig it to a Wi-Fi to your phone or something. So we've done weird stuff like that, looking for landing. Is that is issues. that a
2: minor alteration? Oh, uh, I guess if you tape uh, it, it's not. Yeah,
3: it's not. A, it's not
4: installed. Yeah, it's not right? permanently attached.
3: That's an interesting idea.
4: We've done that. I, so don't don't tell. Well, she actually found out. I was going to say don't tell Helen, but I taped a camera onto the ventral fin of a Columbia to watch for landing gear shimmy because it's not a steerable nose wheel, and we couldn't tell if it was a main gear or a nose wheel. And I was so proud of myself for getting this video and everything. And then, of course someone saw that and said whose camera did you use. And so be careful who you admit to whose camera you're using, but I think that would be my next step would be to put some sort of camera in there and see what the baffle's doing in flight.
2: Your answer was oh the aircraft owner gave me the video. Huh? <laughs> yeah,
4: right. <laughs> yeah, uh no, I don't know how he got it. <laughs> I don't know how he got it, but unfortunately she knows me well enough to know when I'm not quite telling all of the truth. (laughs) Hmm.
3: And there's no moving parts on top of the engine. So it's relatively safe to, to, you know, fasten something in there and just don't want to block the airflow across more than you have to. So you could do something like that.
4: And it doesn't get hot in there until you stop the airflow.
3: Yeah. And I mean, he's checked out the oil cooler. He's checked out the Vernotherm. It's just the oil temperature at this point. It's, Got to be airflow through the. And and only at
4: low speeds. Yeah. At low air speeds. mm -hmm. I I can't see how it's not airflow related.
3: Let us know how the camera thing goes. Don't get in trouble. (laughs) Keep your camera safe.
1: (laughs) I won't mention a word.
3: (laughs) You didn't hear hear it here, but yeah, that that could maybe give you some really interesting insight into what's going on under there because it definitely sounds like an airflow issue at this point. And maybe that'll pinpoint which baffling you need to rework or rigidize, make rigid or something like that. Okay. Okay. Well, good luck. And I'm sure we'll see you on the ticket system when you figure this one out. Yeah. <laughs> Our next question is from Dan, who's lucky because he gets to customize his engine and he flies an engine that's fairly similar to what I fly. So I'm very interested to discuss this. Go ahead, Dan.
8: Well, good morning, everybody. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate what you do. And I certainly have learned a lot from listening to you guys. So I'm in the process of building an RV10 and cool. yeah, cool. I'm caught up in their whole bankruptcy thing. But anyway, yeah. I do have a, yeah. an, an IO540 C4B5 sitting in my hangar that I intend to overhaul and put into that plane if everything goes right. I wanted to go and make some changes to to increase the performance of the airplane, but still maintain some reliability. And originally I was thinking about changing it out to to 10 to one pistons, doing the port and polish, and largely other than that, keeping it stock except for maybe some gammy injectors. Um, (laughs) I've since talked to a a local engine builder who says, 10 to one is probably a little bit much for that engine. So he says 9.5 to 1 is probably a more reasonable uh, way to approach it. But what are your thoughts on increasing that compression ratio and doing the port and polish? You know, I certainly understand the conceptual concepts, but what am I truly looking at in terms of reliability and what is the cost-benefit of actually going down this road?
4: Don't forget to get a larger rudder. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) On the RV-10, really? I'm, I'm sorry. The first thing that strikes me is if... So, Colleen's husband has a, a a legacy that puts out like a bazillion horsepower. And if he could get it to put out two bazillion horsepower, he'd be even happier. It wouldn't go any faster. but it, Probably you know. not. So, you have 260 horsepower in an airplane that legitimately probably needs like 210.
3: Yeah, that's probably uh, true.
4: Because <laughs> my dad and I were building an RV-10 back in 2004, and it's like there's... You just can never have enough horsepower. Right. It's just, okay.
8: Just because you have it doesn't mean you have to use it, but it's nice to have it. It's nice that's to true. Have. That's true. Okay. And it's
3: cool to say you have 10 to one pistons. It's kind yeah, of that's like, r- yeah. I don't, so. I don't know.
2: Th- I don't think it's cool. <laughs> it makes me nervous because you, you're basically in, intentionally reducing the detonation margin of the engine. And and I so I, I would... I would say if, if you feel compelled to put high compression pistons in, you absolutely positively need to have an engine monitor with a good alarm system that, that will uh, alert you if you have a thermal runaway and CHTs because you're increasing the probability that that will happen by going to the higher compression pistons. It, it's just reducing the detonation margin. Below what it, what the FAA requires in order to certify it. You know, obviously an engine with 10 to 1 pistons is not a certifiable engine. You don't care because it's an experimental, but, but realize that, that you're skating on thinner ice than what the FAA would approve if it was certified.
3: So I actually made a list of the pros and cons.
2: Of course you did.
3: Of course, because I was thinking, because I've flown two legacies. Did you consult with your husband? (laughs) Well, we did. We talked about it, yeah. But um, I've flown two legacies now with 10-to-1 pistons, so I've got a little bit of experience in this. One thing right off the bat is 10-to-1 pistons are aftermarket pistons, and they're typically forged. And Dave pointed out that uh, that makes them stronger than the um, ones that you would get, uh, eight and a half to one, I guess, is the normal. So... If you're going to be, you know, busting your engine up, you have stronger pistons in there. So that's, that's a plus. They provide more power and more efficiency, but you're doing that at the expense of higher CHTs and, and smaller detonation margins, as Mike pointed out. So you do have to be careful. But you're, you're flying around with higher CHTs and lower EGTs. So that's the efficiency. There's more of the explosions happening in the, in the cylinder under the higher compression, and you're not, you know, sending that energy out the exhaust pipe. So your efficiency is better. That comes at the expense of higher fuel flow. So your operating costs are going to be higher because you're burning more gas for that power. So you better really need that power because you're going to be paying for it. So that's something to think about. You possibly or quite possibly uh, have a different magneto timing with the 10 to 1s, and that's fine as long as you're aware of it and the people that work on your plane are also aware of it. Because if you have somebody working on the plane, they're not aware you have 10 to 1s, you could you know, easily cause detonation by having the timing wrong. The timing will have to be backed off a bit to run the 10 to 1s.
8: And to that end, my plan was mm-hmm. to uh, swap out the, uh, the left mag um, to an e-mag and then maintain yep. the original mag. Is that sure. a good response to that scenario?
3: Uh, you still need to adjust the timing. I mean, no matter what the magneto is. Yeah, but that, that I mean, e-mag's perfectly fine, you know, to run electronic. Uh, and then one more thing, um, the 10 to 1s. They're running at higher inter-cylinder pressures, more stress on the cylinders. So they'll probably run out sooner, you know, um, require re- replacing the cylinders sooner because there'll be more wear if you're, yeah, or, or cracks. But, but, okay. By the way,
2: yeah. I, I, on, the, on the forged versus cast pistons, <laughs> interesting to note that when I overhauled both of my engines back in 1990 on the 310, I specifically had them put the the older style forged pistons in which were no longer being manufactured by Continental but were being manufactured by ECI rather than putting in the the cast pistons which is what what Continental was was offering. The only engine failure I have ever had in 55 years of flying occurred when one of these forged pistons decided to come apart and shed half of the piston skirt into the engine.
3: That so, is ironic.
2: It
4: <laughs> took it 3,000 hours to decide to yeah. do that. It, it, it's <laughs> true. It did that. It, it
2: did that. But, but at any rate, the, the, I, I agreed in principle that the forged pistons were better. That's why I put them in. But uh,
3: but we decided that was a defect, didn't we, Mike? You yeah, we think, was we
2: think it was an inclusion in the metal that, that, uh, nucleated, uh, a, a, a fatigue fracture.
8: Okay. Well, great. Thank you guys. I really appreciate, uh, the, uh, the information and your time. So, uh, keep doing what you're doing.
3: Right. Sure. Thanks Glad for the call, Dan. Help.
8: Okay. Take yeah. care.
0: All right. It's time for letters. Uh, one of our favorite parts of the show and, uh, lots of interest in the Taylor craft from Alaska. You remember that that was the really dramatic video there he was like tied down and powered up and it stumbled a lot so um he said just finished listening to your podcast where brendan was having an engine issue run an issue with his c85 and his uh Taylorcraft bc12 i experienced something very similar with my c85 on my Cessna one 20 years ago i bought a quote freshly restored barn find that in all seriousness was in pretty good shape i ferried it to my buddy's hangar where we began a lengthy annual And we encountered the engine stumbling or trying to die when the engine was transitioning in the 900 to 1300 RPM range. Figuring it was the carb, as the airplane and engine had sat for more than 20 years, we overhauled it ourselves, reinstalled it, and ran it. Again, same thing. Perplexed, my buddy's dad, an old school A&P from way back, comes over and suggests we run it with the fuel caps off to ensure it's not a fuel venting issue. What do you know? The issue went away. Reason was the old farmer that owned the airplane previously had installed fuel caps he bought from a tractor supply company that looked similar to what Cessna had on it, except with a much smaller vent hole. With the proper caps in place, the engine stalling issue went away. Thought I'd pass along just in case. That's interesting. I think we,
4: we talked about that in that uh, show earlier, did we not? Something about fuel delivery? I can't remember. So in
2: the Taylor craft, apparently the, the caps are the primary event, not, not just the secondary event like they are on Cessna. No?
3: So it stumbles uh, because it, it's, it's, it needs to has an immediate demand for fuel and the fuel just kind of doesn't catch up with it quick enough because the it's gravity not Yeah,
4: you've got to vacuum, vacuum in the tank. But usually there's enough fuel in the bowl to run for quite a few seconds before that would happen. Like on a, don't ask me how I know this, but on a Comanche one hundred and eighty, at full power, it's twenty three seconds. Oh, really. <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> so if you like, if you turn off the fuels, if Doom you turn off
2: the
3: fuel
4: selector, the 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 engine yeah. will run yeah. for twenty three <laughs> seconds. It will. Yeah.
3: Okay. Thanks That's for
4: that. another. Paul's got to go up and find out. But I got paid to find out, so I was. So, so you I had, had one
2: hand on the fuel selector, the second hand on the stopwatch. Who was flying the airplane?
4: Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, we we don't need. I, I think the. <laughs> I <laughs> think okay. it's been long enough. I could talk about it, but I, won't. I don't. I don't think he <laughs> wants us to do this.
0: Yeah. No. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was from Joe, by the way. So thanks, Joe. Um, okay, and then two kind of similar suggestions. One's from Dan. He said, just passing along a thought with regard to the caller's issue on his friend's T-craft engine cutting out, he said, no one mentioned the mag switch. And it sounded like the caller had looked at every other part of the airplane.
4: Oh, I suppose the mag switch vibration uh, could have intermittent contacts, but that's an
3: odd failure of a mag switch. And just passing a certain, oh, the RPM range produces a vibration that somehow. It should have to be
4: close to the ground contacts, which it isn't when it's in a both position.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I recently did a webinar on, on these problems with these mag switches, but but the, the the problem is always in the off position, not in the both position. The both position are usually pretty... Because basically, in the both position, they don't ground anything out. They're just open circuit.
4: And they're not close to a grounding lug on the inside, if you look at the way it's built.
3: We don't like that one so much.
4: I
2: still like toggle switches better, but...
4: <laughs> yes.
0: Eric had a similar thought. He mentioned uh, the ignition switch. He also mentions the bleeds. He said if both magneto P leads were momentarily shorted out for some reason, he doesn't say why, could that cause the loss of ignition?
3: Oh, yes.
4: But that'd be the same thing. And yeah, vibration. So now I don't know if he has shielded uh, uh, P leads, which almost everybody does. I think they're all shielded. Yeah. You know, if that, if under vibration, if, uh, the shield came close to the center wire on one of them, that could certainly do it. No, it, both of them would have to. That's true. Well, sure.
2: that, yeah, that, that, for that, it to that, cut that, out, it would have
4: to be both. That, You're that's right. why
2: it seems unlikely it's ignition problem because the ignition system is, is redundant.
4: That's a significant. But the
2: fuel system's not redundant. So it's much more likely that it's fuel-related. And, and I think your vent scenario sounds like an interesting one too. Yeah, pursue. Yeah, it Keep our theory
3: simple. Go oh, with the simple one first.
4: Yep. Yeah. Our next question is from Dennis, who's trying everything to keep his fuel clean.
5: Go ahead, Dennis. Pleasure to be on. Uh, very interesting. Been listening to you guys from the, from the beginning. I, I find it very informative. Anyway, I have a 2017 M600 Piper. So my left tank has been collecting water. The right tank previously was not collecting water. So my mechanic, who was a recognized PA-46 guru, checked the cap for leaks and found none. I switched the caps to the opposite side. The left tank still collects water, but now the right tank collects a little bit water also. Seemingly not as much. The plane is parked outside. Unfortunately, there's no hangars anywhere in the Northeast. And I would think that if water gets in fuel, gets into the fuel, then fuel could get out. But I haven't seen any leaks. so. Here we are. I, one other thing I did since I wrote this, I put covers, you know, those, those red covers on the fuel caps and water still gets in.
4: So when you say water gets in, those are metal tanks. Water, once you get a good infusion of water into a metal tank, and I don't have any experience on the, on the Meridian Malibu series, but I have a lot of experience with the very similar tanks on the 210s. And when you get a a quantity of water in the tank, it beads up and sticks to the walls of the tank all over the place. And the only time it breaks loose is when the surface tension of the fuel, as the fuel level descends, that surface tension will break the beads loose and they float around. They don't immediately go to the low spot in the tank, which we all think is what happens it just floats around and they roll around like little BBs in the the bottom of the tank and eventually make their way to the drain port. So I don't have the answer to your question unless you got a fairly large quantity of fuel, of water in the one tank from the bad cap, and it's just taking a long time to get all those bits of water out, you may not be introducing new water. This may be old water. Unless, are you getting like large sample cups or just little bits?
5: The first sample was a lot. And then after that, it was little bits.
4: You mean like per flight or the first time?
5: The first time we drained the tank, what, what happened was we were getting a, a a bad fuel level indication. And at first they thought it was a sensor
2: it's a capacitive, capacitive, uh, capacitive system. Yeah. E- even the slightest amount of water in there is going to screw that up really big time. Interesting,
5: yeah.
2: Let me offer a suggestion. Paul, you can shoot me down if this is a bad suggestion. So, <laughs> load, load your weapon. <laughs> I think if, yeah. <laughs> if you dumped uh, some uh, either anhydrous isopropyl alcohol or a low-flow prist into the tank, that would help purge it of, of any water that's in there.
5: The yeah. the about the fuel requires prist, so every every time we put fuel in, it prist goes in. Okay. Oh, interesting.
3: Uses prist. Okay. What does the prist do? So, uh, Backup for newbies like me.
5: Right now, it, it's uh, it's built out as uh, an uh, icing inhibitor, fuel icing right. inhibitor. It? Right? Does it yeah, bond if to the you water could- and? Do something like... I I don't know. I It may lower the freezing point of the water in the fuel. I'm not sure.
4: Like alcohol, if you put it in Avgas, which is a standard procedure, and it's actually in quite a few of the manuals, alcohol likes water. The two get together. And then as you're running the engine, the alcohol will allow the water to go through the combustion process much easier. But uh, I, I'm not... I don't really know what Prist does, but I know if you don't have it, then the water can freeze and actually not flow at all.
3: But it doesn't make the water Mm, go mm, away or chemically uh. eliminate the water. So you'll still drain it and find water in your tank, even with Prist. Okay.
5: Okay. Originally, I thought, you know, the the standard lawyer with jet fuel is that water is miscible in jet fuel. So theoretically, it wouldn't drain out. So... A lot of of guys who fly planes with jet fuel don't even drain the the sumps because they don't think they're going to find any water. But Hmm. I found water. That's interesting.
3: Well, it can only get in one way. Either it's coming in in the fuel or it's coming in because it's collecting in the cap and seeping through. I mean, I've had trouble with fuel caps and water and I've found, I've tried replacing O-rings on my fuel caps. I've got the flush fuel caps on my Cessna. I ended up when when it was parked outside. I ended up putting little like bath mats over my oh, over my wings idea. just to keep yeah, the water. On those but when I knew it was going to rain,
2: everybody replaces the 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 big O ring around the outside, but
4: forget the little but one. But
2: the culprit is typically the little one that 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 seals the stem, and the flush fuel cap acts like a really good funnel <laughs>
5: because it's yeah. got the.
2: It's got a nice bowl built in into it.
5: the top of it.
2: And uh, if that, that inner O-ring isn't sealing, then the water gets in the so tank. So
5: my mechanic actually put a, like a milk jug full of water on the cap on top of the wing <laughs> to see if it was going to leak, and it didn't leak. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't think it's a leak.
4: I think you've got water in the tank, and it's just taken a while for it to all find its way to the drain.
5: Dennis, we need to get
4: you a hangar. What
2: what what kind of a Kakamami yeah. wow. airport
4: is this that doesn't have any hangar? Yeah.
5: This is uh, Westchester County Airport in White Plains. Oh, oh my, my that's goodness.
2: Tough. Oh. Well, there's <laughs> lots of hangars. There just aren't any yeah. available. You have to wait yeah. for somebody yeah, to yeah, die, right?
5: Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and yeah. don't ask how much they cost.
2: Oh, God. Yeah, wow. I can White just Plains imagine. is, yeah. yeah, that's a problematic airport. So in several different ways,
5: but we all live near here, so there you go. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, well, I well. I appreciate the effort. I you know I I stumped the PA forty six guru. I figured I'd give you guys a chance.
4: <laughs> yeah, but we're used to getting stumped.
5: Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. Thanks very much for the comments. I'll uh, let you know what happens. All right, Dennis. Thanks okay. for the call. Okay. Thank you. Good
3: luck. Stay warm. Thanks. <laughs> Our next question is from John, who is trying to put his borescope to best use. Tell us what your question is, John.
7: Hello, folks. Uh, Look, Mike has persuaded many of us uh, to own and use borescopes, you know, to check our engine condition. But I'm not sure that there's any clear guidance about what precisely we should be asking our AMPs to be inspecting and photographing. So it seems to me there should be a standard sequence of photos that we take inside of each cylinder so that when something goes wrong, we have a time sequence of how that part of the cylinder has changed over the years. Uh, maybe pictures of the exhaust valve, uh, junction between intake and exhaust crosshatch on cylinder walls. Is there anything else?
4: So glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs>
3: what a segue. Well, we, we, were, yeah. we
2: were, we were actually talking about this before you came on, um, but in fact, I think, I think you must have been uh, participating in some sort of a mind reading exercise because <laughs> uh, uh, we are um, very close to completion of a 30-minute a video training course on this very subject that we are committed to releasing sometime um, before January 1st. Uh, it may be released by the time this this podcast airs. In fact, where uh, the star of the show is is going to be Dave is Dave Pasquale, who's our borescope guru, who has uh, done a zillion engines, and we we are are showing a, a specific protocol exactly as you described, that involves taking eleven specific images of each cylinder. Three images of each valve, uh, with the valve open and closed, looking at the at, at the seat and the stem and the valve face. A picture of the top of the piston, and then four images of the uh, of the cylinder barrel at at 6, three, six, nine, and twelve o'clock positions, where we're looking for various things. At the six o'clock, we're looking for oil puddling. At the three and nine o'clock, we're looking for uh, piston pin scuffing, and so there's basically a sequence, a standardized sequence of 11 images per cylinder. Um, we even have a file naming convention as part of it. As a companion to this 30-minute video, we're also um, uh, releasing a, a, a borescope inspection checklist that go, that basically goes through these 11 images with little um, thumbnail photographs of what each image should should look like. So it should be very clear to... To the ANPs, exactly what we're looking for, and we we've also uh, enhanced the this this the savvy platform to provide for a um, borescope image repository, or a place where you can upload these images and uh, and uh, keep them on file and do exactly the sort of comparisons you're talking about of this inspection versus what the last inspection looked like, um, of course. To do that, you need to have standardized image protocols so that, that you're, you know, you're comparing apples to apples. So uh, we've been hard at work doing all of that stuff. It'll all be released by by the first of January. And um, that's, um,
7: that sounds great. Uh, and I'm hoping to be about the first person to to use that <laughs> protocol in anger, because my next question relates to the fact. <laughs> that's right. My next yeah. question. <laughs> I, I happen quite by accident to listen to the episode where Paul described his oil consumption problems with his Cirrus. And he, I think he said he pulled two cylinders and did a quite light hone and new rings. My engine has the same issue, much the same symptoms. 600-hour uh, uh, lycoming factory overhaul for four years. Consumption was about 0.13 quarts. Uh, and then in 2001...
2: About 0.13. I love that. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, you know, pretty pretty good. And well, uh, court, courts are. Uh, to the nearest thousandth of a court, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs>
7: That's, there you go. Um, but then during 2001, consumption roughly doubled. So, more like about 2.5, 2.6. Um, at the annual last year, 12 months ago, using our Borscope. Uh, we saw that the bottom plugs in cylinders two and four were oily and that there was oil in the bottom of those cylinders. But no obvious scuffing, no obvious damage. Mm-hmm. In May 2023, we did a ring wash and found that numbers two and four were hydro-locked. But when we followed the procedure, they eventually freed up. Uh, oh, saw a lot of gun come out. Yeah, there you go. That's uh, See where the ring wash occurred? And what you can see there is oil consumption. You pulled consumption. on the prop really, really hard. <laughs> no, I didn't. My, my, my A&P did. And he was very careful. He was a bit afraid. He didn't want to put too much effort into it. Sure. Um, but it's now come back to high levels. For <laughs> you know, Basically, over the last 36 hours, I've, I've fed 10 quarts in the engine. Mm. So, yeah, we're up at 0.29. I, I fear, I think, the trend is upward. Um, now, what I, I have decided to do, I've, I've ordered a spare cylinder, uh, a first run, uh, run overhaul with new rings, and that's going to be ready next month when my annual is due. It takes four or five months here at the moment to get a, to buy a new cylinder, so I want to have one available. And I'm going to get my AMP to bore scope the engine at the annual using your new procedure, and then I'll send the images to you. I'm really hoping that we will have a consensus on on that it's one cylinder that needs the problem, you know, that is the Hmm. problem, and then we'll replace that cylinder.
2: What's the the current level of oil consumption?
7: Well, it works out at uh, well. I say ten quarts in 36 hours.
2: Okay, so so around three
4: hours.
7: One one in three three hours, hours,
4: yeah. So that's not horrible.
7: Well, okay. Let me let me just explain to you what my problem is. I don't, you know, I, I know about the calculated 0.65 quarts per hour for the like, Lycoming I mean, 200 horsepower engines. The un- unfortunately, nobody knows how much oil an engine is going to use when a ring breaks. And I've been there before. I mean, in 2011, uh, mine did exactly that, and it was using more than a quarter an hour. So it goes up well over the 0.65. But put that into my situation last week, I flew to West Australia four, four-and-a-half-hour flights to cross Australia and back. And when I start the flight, you know, I've, I've got seven litres of oil in the sump. I can't be sure I'm going to have the minimum four quarts when I get to the end because if a ring broke straight after takeoff, then I'm consuming oil at a quarter an hour. I'm going to have more like two-and-a-half quarts at the end of that flight.
2: Yes, I, 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 always, I always say it's embarrassing to run out of oil before you run out of fuel. Yeah,
7: I didn't, I didn't go out <laughs> over the water, I might add. I stayed very close to a 1,200-kilometre runway called the Air Highway uh, just uh-huh. in case and, yeah. and basically, basically watched the uh, oil temperatures. So you can see where I am. You know, the 0.65 is all well and good, but if you're doing a lot of very long flights, as in mm-hmm. four and a half hours. You liability,
3: for sure.
4: It don't look. So I assume, or presume, that you're going to do another ring test or ring wash to possibly identify another cylinder that's clogged up? He was hoping to
3: use the borescope to do that. Well,
4: borescope isn't going to show that.
3: Yeah. He's looking for where the worst oil is, the oil pooling. I think that's what I'm hearing.
4: Yeah, I would still do a ring wash. I, I I think the ring
2: wash is a lot better diagnostic tool. In terms of identifying the cylinder,
4: yeah, because all the cylinders are going to have a little oil pooling in the bottom. Yeah, I think a ring wash is going to be more definitive.
7: Yeah, I did wonder whether the process of doing the ring wash back in May might have mobilized a lot of gunk that we thought we'd got rid of, but hadn't.
2: Well, we hope we hope it mobilized it. That's the purpose and flushed of it. it out.
3: Yeah,
7: it did, but I, but I fear you know if you look at the oil consumption that graph that was put up before
0: you know
7: after the the ring wash it it seemed to be heading in the right direction i thought all was well yeah but then after a few months bingo you know it's uh it's, it's climbing again so that was precisely the advice i was looking for as to whether you know go through the extra step of doing another ring wash to see whether we can deal with it that way
2: well, I think, I think what Paul is suggesting is to do another ring wash for diagnostic purposes, try right. to identify the cylinder. Yeah, not to fix anything. Paul. Yes. I mean, the, the ring wash is, is peculiar in that regard. It, it, it sometimes is therapeutic and sometimes is diagnostic and you never know which one it's going to be until <laughs> right. you do it. Until you do it.
7: Well, So there. Good. I okay. feel as though I have a way forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, look look up the unusable oil on your engine. I think you'll be surprised. I
7: I, I will certainly do yeah. that. I'm just hoping it's uh, it's not more than one cylinder, because you only have one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm seriously considering asking the uh, overhauler to do me a second one as well, just in case.
4: Well, in this climate of uh, supply chain issues. Whether you need it now or not, that's not a bad idea.
2: Yeah, I've got a spare cylinder on the shelf right now.
7: (laughs) Well, I'm going to have two spare cylinders. Is that right? Uh, I think that's a good idea. I have
2: 12 cylinders, so one of them is (laughs) sure to need replacing at some point.
7: Exactly right. Look, thank you very much for that. Yeah. That's exactly what I was looking for. We appreciate the call, John. John. Good questions.
3: And look for that Borescope training video. It's coming out soon.
7: I've seen it already. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh. okay. No, uh, I've been talking to Paul Cordopades, and uh, of course uh, he immediately oh, up and said, "Ah, oh, yeah, of oh,
3: course."
7: Well, sure we need it, you know. That's that's the thing. I mean, yeah. so but yeah. I I was a good guy. I didn't I didn't say that at the start of this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, A oh. and always good. want one guidance to follow, and this is yep, an area where there just be hasn't been any guidance.
7: Yeah. So we're, that's yeah. exactly. Exactly wrong. Right. Oh. That's exactly wrong. Right. Yeah. Cool. We'll
3: tell Paul we talk to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take care. Mechanics always <laughs> want <laughs>
2: guidance to follow, except for Paul New. He just wings it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> just wing it. Make it up as I go. He, yeah, exactly. Like Calvin ball. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Very good.
4: Thanks, John. Okay,
7: okay. Thanks again.
3: Thanks for calling Bye-bye. in. Bye bye. Bye bye. that's it for this episode hopefully we got a couple of questions right this time we love receiving fan mail from you and we read it all if you have any tricky questions send them to us our email is podcasts at aopa.org
2: we'll see you bye everybody.